That was awesome. <laughs> I am yeah. half drunk. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, it might be kind of hard to preach. That was wonderful. Thank all the worship team members, the worship leader. Oh, my gosh. That's just good. Give them a hand. That was just good. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to be begin to read at verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things shall he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden sticks, golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and that how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hath labored, and has not fainted. Nevertheless... I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from which thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. You can be seated. Take a moment and just open this up with prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, I do thank you for the privilege and honor of ministering your word today. I ask that you put your words in my mouth. May I say your word and nothing else. I ask that you prepare the hearts and minds of each and every man, woman, and child in this congregation to receive your truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Whew. So we were just talking about God can do anything. That God is the God of the impossible. If he ever did it once, he would do it again. Yeah. We, in that song, we were talking about how cities are going to be saved. Complete families will yes, be sir. coming back unto the Lord. This is not just a song. This is a prophecy. This is a reality. This is us speaking forth the reality of God's word. But in order for God's word to take place, God's man and God's woman must be in their place. You see, God chooses to use instruments of righteousness to accomplish His goals in this world. And in case no one's informed you quite yet, I'm going to today. You are an instrument of righteousness when you are in the hand of the righteous one. When King Jesus takes you to accomplish His goal in this world, you are the very change agent. So that is what we're going to talk about today. So the scripture text we have here in the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John. And, and John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's been ex, uh, exiled. And he's been exiled because he's preaching the gospel. He's declaring the name of Jesus and they've exiled him for that. So the word says that he is in prayer in the spirit on the Lord's day. And as he's in the spirit, he hears the voice of Jesus. And he begins to have a vision. A vision of our glorified Savior before him. And Jesus makes it very, very clear who he is. There's no ambiguity here. Jesus says, I am the one. There is no other one beside me. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Write it down and take it to those that I'm, in, that I'm sending you to. 
So he says there's some churches that I have a very, very specific message for. And I want you to write it down and send it out to them. There was actually seven churches. They were in Asia Minor, a part of the world that is basically modern-day Turkey. His first prophecy, this first letter, was written to the church at Ephesus. Now, I want to tell you a couple things about Ephesus because we really need to know the city that this thing is going to. You see, Ephesus was one of the most economically powerful cities in the entire Roman Empire. Its history teaches that there was about a quarter million people living there. It was a, a giant economic center because they had a, a big harbor that was on the Aegean Sea and there was three trade routes that filtered in to this harbor. It made them one of the most influential cities in all of the Roman Empire. And it was also a very religious city. But its religion was not ours. You see, this city was a pagan city. They had horrible practices. They were one of the largest worshipers of the Roman goddess Diana or the Greek god Artemis. Same god, different translations. They would say that this god temple was one of the largest, most magnificent structures in all of the ancient world. Historians say that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That there was literally thousands of priests and, and priestesses that operated in this temple. And unfortunately, a large portion of those operated in prostitution. This cult was so powerful that it led to the revolt that we see in Acts 19 where the people rise up against Paul and they, they want to imprison him and they begin to scream for the space of two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You see, they were dedicated to their false god. And it wasn't only Diana. They had imperial worship there as well. There was an imperial cult that was very ingrained into the fabric of their society. They had temples to... Uh, Julius Caesar, they had temples uh, to uh, Domitian because these emperors declared themselves as God and demanded that they be worshipped. But in this place, a church was established. In this place, Priscilla and Aquila establishes a church after they were left behind by Paul in about AD 52. They were aided by Apollos and about two years later, Paul returns and Paul makes this the very center of his evangelistic journeys throughout Asia Minor. Background. This is the place that we're talking about. Let's go to verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand and walketh in the midst of the seven golden sticks. The previous verse would tell us exactly what he is referring to here. Verse 1 or uh, chapter 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou seenest in my right hand and the seven golden sticks, seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou saw are the seven churches. So I want to bring something to your attention. It says, He who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Jesus 
Yes, he is in heaven. Yes, after he finished the work of redemption, he sat down because his work was finished. Yes, he exists in a plane that is spiritual. Yes, he exists in this eternal paradise. But here's the reality. Heaven is not somewhere out there on the other side of the universe where God is looking back, squinting, trying to see what's going on in his church. You see, God is in the very midst of his people. It says he walks in the churches. He is here right now today. He is in here right now today. So I want to, to give you a word of warning. When something comes up in your mind and you're like, I want to think about this or I want to do that or I want to go here, there is no way that, that you're hiding it from the God who's way out there because the reality is, is your God is right here. He doesn't see you do the thing. He's with you while you're doing the thing. He said He'd never leave us nor forsake us. No matter how crazy it gets in your mind, no matter how crazy it gets in your life, if you're a born-again believer, He's right there. You can't hide it from Jesus. You see, uh, David would say it like this. He would say, if I would ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. You see, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, all the time, in all places, at all times. God doesn't watch He's right there with you every moment of every day. Nothing is hid from His gaze. And this all-seeing God would tell this church, it would say, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou cannot bear them which are evil. He said, your labor. He said, you're a working church. He said, you're not a lazy church. He said, I know you're out there doing good things. He said, my churches, my people are not lazy people. If you're a lazy person, you are not walking in accordance with God's word because God's people work. And he said, you're a laboring church. He said, you're patient. He said, you don't get weary in well-doing. He said, day by day you get up and it doesn't matter the persecution that the culture throws at you. It doesn't look how disappointing it may be. It doesn't matter that maybe you've preached for a decade and only one soul has come. It doesn't matter that you're living day by day in your house and being a witness to your loved one and they still haven't. He said, no, they are patient. He said, you are so patient in well-doing. And he said, you have an inability to bear evil. He said, you refuse to compromise with the world. He said, even though all of this craziness is going on around you, you absolutely refuse to be a partaker of it. You say, I don't care what the culture says. I will not do Amen. that thing. Amen. They truly knew that they were in the world, but they were not of the world. Their home was not this horrible Ephesian city. And he said, you've tested those. Who, pray, who claimed to be apostles, but they were liars. You found them out to be liars. You see, that had a warning from Paul about 30 years before. Paul said, now listen, in his farewell address, he said, when I leave, I want you to know, he said, there's going to weave ravenous wolves from the outside trying to come in to disrupt the flock. And even worse than that, there is going to be people within your own midst that's going to rise up to spread false doctrine so you'd be on the lookout. They took his word. They took the word of God and they put it in their heart and they said, we're going to keep this thing. We're going to be watchful. We're going to hold on to what God's word says and we're going to judge those who come among us you see the word of God is very clear we are to know them that labor among us we do not just let anyone into this pulpit it is very important that you know those who are teaching you the word and they did 
they did an excellent job of rooting out those evil wolves. Verse 3 would go on to say that all of these things you have done, and you did them for my name's sake. He said, here's the thing about it. He said, you're not just doing good works to, to make your church look good, to make your pastor look good. You're not even trying to bump up your own name. He said, you're doing it for one reason and one reason only. You're doing it for the name of Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us that whatever we do, indeed, we must do unto the glory of the Lord. And they were walking in this reality. They were seeking God's glory in everything they did. They did not seek their own. Do all in the name of Jesus. Church, I don't know about you, but I'm looking at these guys and they're killing it. This is the church I want to be part of. They're in the very heart of an idolatrous, sexually perverse, corrupt nation and they are walking on with Jesus just the same. You see, we look at our culture and we think we're in, this is the worst place the world has ever been. But I'm here to tell you there's not a temple next door with a thousand prostitutes. I'm sure it's bad in this country, but it is not as bad as it was in Ephesus. But even in the midst of all that was going on, they refused to compromise. This is a church. The pressure of economics, social pressure, political pressure had to be absolutely overwhelming. And they said, I don't care what the pressure on the outside is. It will not affect our ministry inside these doors. The level of persecution that they endured had to be unbelievable. In the midst of cultural debauchery, they built a thriving Christian, evangelic, and missionary movement that was evidently doctrinally sound and ethically moral. They were doing it all right. I don't know how you could add anything to what they were doing. If, if someone would describe city on a hill in these words, I would be so happy. How about even if the God of all creation would step in and describe our church like this, I would think, guys, we've got it all whipped. We don't have to worry about anything else. We're doing the thing. But it goes on. Verse 4 would say, nevertheless... All these wonderful things you're doing. All these amazing ministries you're doing. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. I have somewhat against thee. Even though you've got all of this stuff right, you're doing something wrong. What? What could be more important than separating from the world, living a holy right, and preaching the truth? What could be more important than that, Jesus? And he would hit them with this. Thou hast left thy first love. Thou hast left thy first love. One of the most memorable and haunting phrases in all of Scripture. Thou hast left thy first love. No further explanation is needed. No amount of commentary needs to be added to this. There's no more accusations that must be tacked onto this. This is an absolutely damning statement to one's soul. You've left your first love. Mic drop. Nothing else to be said. How can this be? How can this very model of a successful church somehow strayed away from the very love of God? Well, I want to read you scripture here. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm going to read verses 1 through three, but I'm going to actually read it from the New King James 
just because uh, the word charity in the King James is much better translated as love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and even though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Good works, pure doctrine, they are no substitute for the most pure expression of what God has called us to do. The most selfless of commitments, the most purest of emotions, love. Love that was expressed in creation, love that extended grace after the fall, love that, that sent uh, the only begotten Son in the world, love that would send Jesus to the cross, love that continually makes intercession for me on a daily basis, the same love that calls on our heart this day. The love of God. Thou hast left thy first love. So, so what love did they leave? Did they leave a, 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 an intentional love for God? Did they, they leave the love for their brother and sister? Did they, they leave the love for this world? You see, there's endless debates in commentaries on, on exactly what love these, these uh, believers would leave. All are reasonable. They all can make biblical sense. But I honestly think they are drawing distinction where no distinction is required. Because you see, here's the reality. He said, my you have left your first love, the first place where it all began. He said, you have left the very thing that motivated you in this Christian walk. You see, I want to turn to, to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 16 through 21. And the Word of God would tell us this. And we have known and believed that the love of God, that, and we have known and believed that the love that God hath, to us, God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. I told you guys I was drunk. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgments, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him. Because he first loved us. If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. The love of God is not something that, that stays in, in the relationship with, with you and God. The love of God is something that motivates every other loving relationship in your life. You see, every other bit of love must flow through divine love. Divine love is the source of all true love. If you love your neighbor, it's because God loved you. If you love your wife, it's because God loved you. If you love your child, it's because God loved you. It's all because He is the source of love that we have the ability to love. 
There's a question thrown to Jesus in Mark. And he addresses this question in a fashion. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31 would say this. And one of the scribes came, and having heard the reasoning together, and perceived that he had answered them well, asked him, What is the first commandment of all? What's the first commandment? What, what should we keep above all other things? And Jesus would say, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all of thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is likely, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, here's the reality. When a cooling of your personal love to God happens in your life, every other relationship is affected. There is absolutely no way you will love anyone in the fashion that you are supposed to love them when your love with Jesus is not where it needs to be. You see, our love between brethren is diminished. Our love for the lost is obliterated. There is no love where the love of Jesus has run cold. So this provokes a question. How in the world could this church, who looked like it was doing everything right, who had all of their, 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 their missionary values in line, who had all of their, their public outreach ministries going right, who had all their doctrine and theology lined up, how in the world could they be functioning so perfectly but fail to love Jesus appropriately? I think it's a good question. How is that possible? Obviously, they had not completely stopped loving Jesus. If they had stopped loving Jesus, they would no longer be the church. He would not even be addressing them if they had completely stopped loving them. So the question is much more about motivation and priority. Uh We can certainly do the right things, and many times we do the right things, but we do them maybe for not the right reason, or maybe for not the best reason. Our reasoning is so important because pure reasons lead to pure outcomes. Our motives matter. If God is not first in your life, He's last. Because here's the reality. If He is God, He must be first. If you place anything in your life over Him, you have allowed that thing to supplement or supplant Him as God, and now that thing has become God. Whether it's your children, your grandchildren, your wife, your job, your country, whatever it is, nothing can be greater than Jesus in your life. We have to love Him more than our very life. Jesus would say it like this. If you don't love me more than mother or father, sister, brother, you're not even worthy of the kingdom. He is ultimately worthy of all of our affection, all of our love. Every thought and decision must be based on that reality. You see, the thing about the Ephesians, they had gotten so good at the what. They had gotten so good at at small group and and outreach and service ministry. They had got so good at these things, they had forgot the who. They had forgot why they started this thing in the beginning. 
You see, church, you have to remember that our Christian faith is a dedication, not, not to a movement. It's not, it's not a dedication to an idea or a philosophy or some group of morals or some group of laws. What our belief is, is a dedication to a man, to a God-man, to the only one who left heaven's glory to live and die as a man for you on Calvary's tree. We are dedicated to Jesus Christ, Him crucified, Him risen again. That's what Christianity is based on. We're dedicated to Jesus. And if we're dedicated to Jesus, we have to love Him. So back to our text. Because thou hast left thy first love. Because you left the place that you once had. This, this desire, this, this place that you had in relationship with me. Verse 5 would say, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. He said, remember, we must actively engage in remembering our first love. It is an absolute imperative in our life. We must know what we were thinking back then. We must know what we were feeling back then. We must know what we were doing back then and what we chose to abstain from back then. Because here's the reality. Every single one of us, when we first got up from that altar, that first salvation experience, everything was better. The birds chirped better. The sky was bluer. Water tasted better. Your wife was prettier. Your husband was more handsome. Your kids didn't get on your nerves. All of the, everything was just perfect. And there's people that will tell you you can't walk in that reality. And I say they're wrong. I say they are absolutely wrong because the Word of God says you left your first love. That first love, you must be able to stay in it if He condemned them for leaving it. Remember, intentionally, mentally taking ourselves back to where we were fallen from. Not just some, oh, happenstance remembering. No, you intentionally, you sit down and you focus your mind that at the very height of my love for Jesus, what was the focus of my, my mind during that season of life? How, how long did it last? How, how long was I in this place where He was the most beautiful thing in the world? How, how long was I in this season that His Word was the most important thing that I could read? How, how long was I in this place that, that all I wanted to do was... Stay up at night and pray and talk to Him because I know what I used to be and where He brought me from. How long has it been since you've been in that place? We must remember and intentionally focus on that love, on that time. We must put our, we have set our mind like a flint that I am going to remember this reality. I am not going to let anything distract me from this. I'm going to remember how good you were, how much I loved you, and how much I gave to you because I know you gave it all to me. Church, we have to remember. We have to intentionally focus on that season of life. Because you can never ever repent from what you refuse to confess. And you cannot confess what you have no guilt of. So you must remember. Remember where you have fallen from. Remember how dedicated you were. How important He was. How everything else in your life was secondary. Remember where you've fallen from. Remember the power of your new birth. Remember the, the release of the burdens of your sin and shame. Remember the peace of the knowledge that you got from His presence. Remember the satisfaction that you got from just saying the name Jesus. 
Church, we have to remember, it's not just a momentary recollection. It's an intentional, mental, emotional, spiritual connecting with that past. In speaking of communion, Jesus would say, you do this in remembrance of me. We've had wonderful teaching on communion. We don't do communion just sitting down thinking, okay, Jesus died for me. No, we take a moment. We remember. We take it into our very spirit. What, how he was broken. How his blood was broken. We, we want to tangibly feel the, 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 the sorrow, the pain. We want to take hold of that the best we can. That's the kind of remembering that we must do for this church. We must put ourselves back into that place and we must remember what it was like to love Jesus more than your very breath. This act of remembering then provokes a response. And there can only be one response. You see, this remembering is a continual. You don't just do it once. You do it day by day. You make yourself remember. But you repent. It's once. You repent. You turn. You break it. The only answer is to repent. Unlike that continuing ask action of day by day remembering, you repent. You say, no, not anymore. I'm going to stop looking at the works of my hand. I'm going to stop looking and listening to the praise of man. I'm going to stop basing what my ministry looks like on how many amens I get. I'm going to stop basing my Christian walk on how many people like to come and hear my message. I'm going to stop basing my Christian walk on anything other than the voice of my beloved king we've got to get back there church we have to turn our focus and affections away from our actions and back onto Jesus our doctrines are important our way of life is important abstaining from evil things is important but none of that means anything if we forget the motivation of our life he has to once again become our greatest joy his love must once again be the primary overarching motivation in every aspect of our life. Matthew 6 and 22 would say it like this. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. Church, we got to have our eye focused on Jesus. Not focused on following after his rules or, or focused on, on trying to, to act like his way of life or to act like the, the way he taught or, or to act like the way he loved or to act, like, to act like anything. No, what we have to do is we have to look at Jesus. We have to fall in love with him again. And when that reality crushes into our life and influences everything around us, we don't have to act like anything else ever again. It just naturally flows from who we are because when you love the lover of your soul, you'll love your brother. You'll love the community. You'll love the world. And they will have to see that love. And it's the goodness of God that draws men into repentance. Now that we continually remember that first love and have committed to return to it, what must we do now? The word would say, do the first works. Now remember, don't get, don't get out of line here. The whole reason that he's chastening them is because they were too caught up in works. Very good works, but they were too caught up in works. He's saying, remember your love. Turn from your works 
and turn to me and be motivated by me. And when you're motivated by me, that love will influence every action. And those same works that were once fruitless, those same works that had the wrong motivation will now become fruitful, will now begin to glorify my name, will now begin to influence people beyond what you can imagine because the motivation is your very love for the Creator. Church, we have been called a royal priesthood, according to Peter. A priesthood had a very, very unique opportunity and calling upon their life. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 14. I'm going to read verse 15 and 16. Now remember, we're a royal priesthood. God Himself has chosen to put the moniker priest and priestess, if you will, on all of you. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me. Here's where I want us all to pay attention. They shall come near to me. The priests shall come near to me to minister unto me. And they shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat of the lamb, saith the Lord God. God wants you to want Him. God has given you Himself. Over and over and over again, God says, Me. Church, do you love me? Church, do you want me? Do you want to stand before me? Do you want to minister unto me? They shall enter into my sanctuary and they shall come near to my table to minister unto me. And they shall keep my charge. Church, your holy calling is to minister unto God. That is the greatest ministry you will ever have. I thank God for these music ministers. But you know what? As good as it felt, as, as wonderful as the anointing that I felt, it was not unto me. Or I sure hope it wasn't unto me. Because their first ministry is ministry unto God. And as much as I love seeing that you're enjoying the words that are coming from my mouth, and the much I, as much as I pray that they will influence your life in a positive way, I am first and foremost here to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. I'm here to glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords because my first ministry is a ministry unto God. Your first ministry will never be unto God if you don't love Him. So the world says you can't stay in this place. Carnal Christians say there's no way you can keep that first love. That's not possible. You've got other things you've got to do in your life. There's a little book that was written in the 17th century. A gentleman's name was Brother Lawrence. So Brother Lawrence was a Catholic friar who lived in France in the 17th century. His book, Practicing the Presence of God, is a compilation of, of teachings that he did and letters that he wrote to other priests the, in the, uh, the, con the, whatever, the church. I don't know what the right name is. Not a Catholic, no Vince. So in reading his book, it's not very big. I encourage all of you to read it. Some of the most amazing things that I found out is, is this guy. People from all over would come to be around him. They didn't come to get his teaching. They didn't come to ask his advice. They simply come to be in his presence because they said in his presence you felt the love of God the instant you walked in. They said he didn't have to say anything. He didn't even have to look at you. When you walked in the room you felt the love of God. 
This wasn't something that, that people come to, to, to learn how he did or to get great lectures on how he came to this place. You see, because you know what Brother Lawrence was? He was a dishwasher. That was his job. He washed dishes. He wasn't a teacher, wasn't a preacher, wasn't a praise and worship leader. He washed dishes. So in these letters, Brother Lawrence began to explain. He said, listen, people always want to ask me, why do they feel the presence of God so powerful when they're around me? And he said, because I nourish the presence of God. He said, it is my daily desire to put myself into his presence. He said, now, when I started doing this thing, he said, it was so hard. But he said, I got to this place where I realized God loves me. God has to love me because he sent his only begotten son. God has to love me because I look at the sacrifice of Calvary. I know God loves me more than I can imagine. And I know God is faithful. He is not a man that he should lie. And the word tells me that he will never leave me nor forsake me. Never. He said it doesn't matter if I mess up, if I do stupid things, if crazy stuff comes through my mind. I just say, Jesus, forgive me. And he's right back there. He will never leave you nor forsake. He said, so I know God loves me. And I know God will never leave me. So you know what that means? God is right here. He said, God's not out there. He's in the room right here with me. And it's not even that, that, that he's in the room with me. He, he's actually in the very air that I'm breathing. He said, as I fill my lungs with the atmosphere, God is permeating my very being. He said, I keep my mind on the love of God in every thought, every action, every word that comes out of my mouth. He said, my motivation is the very love of God. This man's fame went all throughout Europe simply because he did not leave his first love. He found a way to hold on to that reality and to never let go of it. I'm here to tell you it does not matter what the world says. It does not matter what some... A preacher on TV says it does not matter what some commentary says I'm here to tell you that you can hold on to your first love every moment of every day it can influence every interaction that you have it can come out in everything that you do in this world so musicians if you'll come today is a good day Today is a good day to remember, to remember the heights from which we've fallen. Because I don't know about you, but in, in getting this message together, I was so convicted. Because there was a time in my life I would not go to bed until I read at least a chapter. There was a time in my life that I would not go to bed until I kneeled down beside my bed and prayed. There was a time in my life that every moment when I woke up and my feet hit the floor, I would say, Jesus, I thank you because I'm a holy, righteous child of God. I'm not telling you these things because I'm bragging. No, I'm confessing them before you because they're my sin. Because I don't do them anymore. But this word, this, this message has brought me back to the place that I'm going to do them again. I'm going to intentionally put myself back into His presence. Back into this place of first love. If you're in a place where you're struggling in your life and you don't know why that you pray and nothing seems to happen. If you try to read your word and you don't understand what you're reading. I encourage you, put yourself back in His first love. Whatever it takes whatever it takes remember remember today is a good day to remember remember where you come from and when you do repent repent God forgive me God forgive me I'm turning back to you I'm going to stop looking at my hands and I'm going to look at your face and from this day forward I'm going to do those works again amen praise the Lord
Thank God for the love of God. Amen.